Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project, episode number 209. Hope you're having a great day. It's Friday. Happy Friday to y'all. Hope you're looking forward to a good weekend. I was out this morning, and man, it's it's already warming up. It's feeling good out there. So just wishing y'all a, a happy Friday. And you know, we've got some great things in store for you today. We're going to be talking about um, Joy Reid and some of the comments she made on MSNBC, um, really expressing, you know, her, you know, she's upset that people are going back to work, essentially, was it comes to. And there's a kind of a race angle in that. And so we're going to discuss her comments. And there's a similar story playing out here in San Diego County with the La Mesa School District, um, where there is one school member that's been very vocal um, opposing the return to work for school officials, school staff members. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to get into, I guess, what I'll call the value of work and why work is important and the value that that we all get from actually doing work. You know, work doesn't necessarily have to be a grind, that there's such huge personal benefits in working. So we're going to kind of cover a lot of that today. But, you know, it's Friday, so I welcome your thoughts and comments. You know, we're live streaming, as we always do, on Facebook and on YouTube. So feel free to, you know, type in your questions and comments. I'll read them on the air. We'll make this a bit of a conversation. Um, And, you know, it's Friday. So ask me anything. I mean, we don't necessarily need to keep our focus just on what I'm going to talk about. But if there are any other thoughts, comments, questions, crazy questions you have, just let me know. And uh, we'll have some fun today on a Friday. Um, Okay, so let's get into the whole Joy Reid situation. And, um, you know, Joy Reid, if you don't know who she is, she's a an anchor on MSNBC, you know, one of the cable news networks. And, you know, she's a she's a host. I mean, I would say she's probably a rising star on MSNBC. You know, she uh, started out as a contributing um you know, person she would fill in, I think sometimes to Rachel Maddow. And then she got her own show and I was watching her show quite a bit on weekends. And I told you, I, I'm not a big cable news watcher, but, um, when I do watch it, it's usually MSNBC and it's usually sort of in the background, you know, in case there's something that, you know, any sort of a national news thing, like if I'm in the morning and just kind of getting my, my, you know, get myself going. I'll have MSNBC on in the background, and I don't. I don't know why. I've, it's always been MSNBC for me. I mean, Fox. If I'm thinking of cable news networks, Fox. You know, obviously is very hardcore right wing, and you know, I it just it always kind of you know kind of bristled me a little bit listening to that side. CNN was okay, and you know. MSNBC, though, I, I, I like their hosts, their personalities. I thought they were interesting. And yeah, their content definitely leans left. But in some cases, I agree with them. In other cases, I strongly disagree with them. And so it's, it's an, it makes me think in a lot of cases. And Joy Reid's another one of those hosts where sometimes she says things and I'm like, right on, Joy. And other times she says things, and I'm like, what are you doing? And so this is what happened in you know, a few days ago, she made this comment about, uh, you know, Texas and Mississippi potentially, you know, reopening and and really kind of getting down on that whole thing, which we'll get into. But I kind of want to, at least before we get started, just talk a little bit more about Joy Reid and, and some of the issues that she talks about. Because if you've ever watched her 
um, especially her weekend shows, are, are usually very, very race-based. And they're usually talking a lot about um, blacks or people in color in general. But they're usually – the racial element of the conversation is a big part of a lot of the topics that Joy Reid t- discusses. And like I said, sometimes – you know, for me, I learn things. Sometimes I'm exposed to new ideas. Other times I'm like in full agreement. And other times I'm like, you know, what in the hell are you talking about? Some of these things don't make sense. But, you know, I'm I'm generally pretty sympathetic to a lot of the racial strife that's going on. And we've talked a lot about it in this podcast, a number of racial issues. And, you know, as a podcast host, I could I could take the easy way out and avoid discussing race because it is a hot topic. And Sometimes a third rail, you know, you're always going to make some people happy and other people mad no matter what you say when it comes to race. But I don't want to avoid it. You know, this podcast is all about big ideas and I encourage the discussion. I mean, I try to make this podcast more about a, a civil, rational conversation where we can listen and learn as opposed to, you know, a screaming match like you sometimes see on cable news networks. But you know, when it comes to a lot of these race issues, I mean, you know me, like with my podcast, I talk about how this podcast is really a celebration of our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And a lot of times when you see racial strife, racial issues, a lot of times it's because people's rights are being violated. I mean, the classic one, of course, is slavery, right? People that were slaves, they didn't have those inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sometimes people will say, oh, our founders, well, they own slaves. So, you know, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And yeah, that's true. But the founders, in my opinion, got the philosophy right when they're talking about how we're all created equal. We should have equal rights and that we have essentially natural rights, individual rights to our own life, Um, rights to our own liberty to make choices and really ultimately to live our life according to our own values, which is really pursuing our own happiness. Um, But obviously, as the nation, as we've gotten better and grown up, you know, it's been a struggle to really fulfill that philosophy and fulfill that vision. And slavery was clearly a violation of that. And there's many other cases like women's right to vote. I mean, we can go down the list of a lot of other issues where we didn't have equal rights. But I tend to see a lot of these racial issues through that prism, and I think it's a healthy way to look at it, in my opinion. And I think it, from my perspective, I like it because I'm not in what I would typically call one of the two primary camps of people when we're talking about race. I think it's kind of more of a refreshing point of view, and and that's why I like it. But um, yeah, let, I, I just want to talk just briefly about this whole notion of systemic racism. And we'll hear people talk about that. You know, we have systemic racism in this country or we have institutionalized racism and we've got to fight against it. Well, you know what? They're right. Um, and in many ways, the systemic part of systemic racism, in my opinion, is the government and a lot of the the laws and regulations that exist in government. In a lot of cases, institutional racism, the institution is the institution of government. I mean, just a a number of examples like the war on drugs, right, that disproportionately impacts people of color. A lot of times drugs that are used by blacks like crack cocaine get more harsh treatment than 
powder cocaine, which are used by whites. Um, you see far more people locked up in prison. We have an incarceration state, a lot of that driven by the war on drugs. A lot of that really, in many ways, a overtly or perhaps a stealth racist policy of the government. I mean, really, if you go back to the whole war on drugs when it started, uh, really it was under, I think Nixon is really when it started to get going. It was outright just a way to control the hippies and the blacks. I mean, that's what it was all about. So the war on drugs definitely has racist roots to it. And that's a big reason why we need to overcome it. Um, We need to Damn, we just need to legalize it and then bring it out into the open where it can be handled safely. And we're not throwing, you know, tons of of of, of young black men in prison unnecessarily. Um, I mean, the whole thing is just nuts. But I mean, other policies like stop and frisk, which was a big thing in New York City where people could be stopped on the street corner and frisked. I mean, a clear violation of their Fourth Amendment rights that targeted black people um, driving while black. We hear that story where people are just driving their car. They get pulled over by a cop because the cop is racial profiling. So that's another example of systemic racism, but it's permeated through the culture, but mostly within government. Um, and in this case with the police and of course, police brutality, like the George Floyd killing Brianna Taylor, you know, who was living in an apartment with her boyfriend and the police, you know, bust down their door, guns ablazing, and she was shot and killed. Then they were looking for drugs and there were no drugs in that apartment. Again, the war on drugs leading to police brutality, leading to a violation of people's rights and a lot of it race based. I mean, other things like blocking school vouchers. And I've I've talked about school choice and I one of my podcasts, I called it my school choice story. I'm a big proponent of school vouchers. And the way that I see it as is that there are poor people that live in school districts where the schools themselves are not you know, are not really great learning environments where people have to, you know, go through metal detectors just to get into the school or maybe the um, the circumstances within that school are just not, um, you know, are just not really great places to learn for any number of reasons. I think it's important that people have flexibility and choice that they could attend other schools. And at this The whole notion of school vouchers is really to help lift up the poor, to give them better opportunity for a better education. By blocking school vouchers, who does that harm? In a lot of cases, it harms blacks and Hispanics and and who are typically more likely to be in poverty than whites. So a lot of cases, this blocking of school vouchers, which is done by progressives because they want to support the institution of public education. Maybe they support teachers unions, but in a lot of ways, they're damaging the opportunity, especially for for children and families that are in very poor areas where there might be a lot of crime, a lot of violence associated with their schools, and they're essentially trapping them because they have no other way of, of escaping. Um, even the raising of the minimum wage, which is a really hot topic right now. Um, that, I mean, if you really go back in history, there's some racial uh, roots to that as well. It was a technique used to essentially block competition in some cases by blacks who were willing to work for less. Now those jobs were declared illegal. And, and even now as the minimum wage goes up, you create a whole underclass of people that aren't working at all. And that's why in a lot of inner cities, you see the unemployment rate of black youth is usually like 
20 percent, 30 percent. And those are the ones that suffer every time the minimum wage goes up. Um, and I think that's an, an angle to the minimum wage story that we don't often hear. Um, I mean, we can go down the list here. I mean, like the travel bans that President Trump enacted that was blocking people from certain countries. Oh, was he blocking people from England and Ireland to come to America? No, he was blocking people from countries that were predominantly Muslim, which ultimately were predominantly, you know, blacks or 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 people from the Middle East. I mean, that that is another form of racism. And we can even go to some of the revoking of visas um, that President Trump did. Again, revoking visas of people that are here on a working visa, maybe a student visa that had come to America to attend a college and then revoking the visa and sending them back to their original country. When frankly, if we're smart, if we're investing the money to allow these people to be educated in America, whether they come from India or China or wherever, you would hope that they would be retained in America to help us and to help grow our economy and make our culture better and to really allow them to prosper so they can experience those same inalienable rights. But of course, they're suppressed. And that's just another example of how a lot of this systemic racism, this institutional racism is really government racism. I mean, we can look at the border detention centers, right? I mean, we saw that under under Trump with the cages at the border and separation of parents and children. But even now with Biden, there is a, there are new detention centers at the border that are holding people, a lot of times children. I mean, they may not be in cages, but they're in other kinds of buildings being held against their will. And who is affected? These are a lot of times Latinos that are coming up from Mexico or from Central America. So, again, a lot of this racism is government <laughs> Based, it's inst- the institutional racism. The institution is government. Um, Gitmo, right? The Guantanamo Bay detention facility that holds that holds prisoners of war from the war on terror. Well, those prisoners of war are typically not white people. They're typically people of color, and their habeas corpus rights are denied. So, they're for many of them, they're in. Um, they're in prison for an unlimited amount of time and have no right to a trial because of the government policy that affects those people of color. Um, the death penalty, I mean, voter suppression, which we're seeing, you know, usually voter ID laws. Some people believe we need to verify that these are legitimate voters. And I get that. But who does that typically impact? People of color. Um, I mean, deportations, housing regulations, civil forfeiture, even Jim Crow laws. Those were laws that separated people, um, that created that notion of separate but equal, the idea of black drinking fountains and white drinking fountains and black schools and white schools. A lot of the Jim Crow, I mean, that's another example of the systemic racism. So when I listen to Joy Reid on MSNBC, I could tell you I'm, I'm generally sympathetic to a lot of these things that they talk about. Sometimes there are some kind of crazy things and this was one of them. And I, I want to talk a bit about this one. This really caught me off guard. And and it, this has a local angle here in San Diego County that I think it'll be fun to explore with this. So, you know, we're live streaming on YouTube and Facebook. I welcome your thoughts and comments. So please feel free to type those in. So just recently, the governor of Texas announced that they were going to lift um, – you know, essentially uh, lift the mask mandate and allow businesses to open. So this is a big deal, right? And so 
there's a lot of states that have been clamoring for this, but they were probably waiting for one other state to start it. And they were probably looking for a big dog to start it. And sure, sure enough, Texas is the one. Mississippi has followed. And I think there might have even been a few more states that have jumped on board. So now that, you know, the COVID case rates are declining and people are realizing that they can, you know, live a lot more safely, you're going to see a lot more of this lifting of a lot of these you know, in my opinion, sort of um, onerous um, authoritarian shutdowns of the economy. I think in many ways we've gone too far on this. But a lot of my liberal friends, my progressive friends are just upset. And Joy Reid was upset. She was upset that how could we be doing this? And this is irresponsible and it's too soon. And and this is not safe to be lifting the um, uh, lifting the mask mandate. Now, now, just as an aside, um, a week ago, my son um, was in Oklahoma visiting one of his friends who lives out there in Tulsa. And while they were out there, they were they went to you know restaurants and bars and hanging out. And he was telling me how they don't. I mean, very few people in Oklahoma are wearing a mask. And they, in some of those bars with young people, they're all shoulder to shoulder. But even in Oklahoma, the, if you look at the case count or the case rate in Oklahoma, it's also in steep decline. So certain states, certain people are ignoring the rules. Um, they're living their life as they see fit. In some cases, they're flaunting the rules. Some cases, they might be a bit irresponsible. But, but still, the case rates are in decline. And I think a lot of people are, are feeling that it's time to turn the page. Well, People and they want to be free. But even in Texas, there are some mayors that are saying, hey, wait a minute, that's too fast. And I think it was the mayor of Austin, Texas, still wants to have mandates for masks. I know pro sports franchises are not they're saying, well, we're not going to open up, you know, the whole baseball stadium or the whole football stadium. We're going to, you know, still kind of gradually ease into this. So, you know, there's varying opinion, but at least by lifting the mandate now, now those business owners have the freedom or the liberty to make their own choices based on their own values and their customers can in turn make their own choices based on their own values. And I think that's a good way to go with this. Well, um, now it, it's turned into a racial issue. And, and that's where this has kind of caught me off guard a bit. I was like the the um, RCA dog, you know, kind of tipping my head to the side, like wondering what's going on. So this is what Joy Reid said. And she said, and so all that matters is that the black and brown people get their behinds into the factory and make me my stakes, make me my stuff, get there and do my nails, work, get back to work now. I do things that I, the comfortable aff affluent person needs. Yeah, do things that I, the affluent, comfortable person needs. Isn't that what we're saying? I mean, that's what it feels like to me necropolitics in the states like Texas. So she is seeing this as this whole notion of going back to work as as these high and mighty rich people kind of telling the, you know, the, the foot soldiers, the people on the front line, go back to work so I can get my stuff. Now, is there some of that? Sure. I mean, some of that exists, but in a lot of cases, a lot of these people want to go back to work, but they can't because their business has been shut down. Um, a lot of cases, there are customers of these businesses that aren't necessarily rich people. They're middle class people, even poor people that want to buy products and services from these businesses, but they can't 
because they've been shut down. Um, but the funny part of it is, is that, you know, the, the whole comment that she made was, um, you know, uh, make me my steaks, you know, like I'll get those people in the restaurants cooking for me. And the funny thing is, is in Texas, right? They take pride in making their own steaks. I mean, that's just the big thing, barbecue in Texas. So it's funny, you know, that, you know, she's kind of a little bit out of touch with the way Texas is, but she brought up this idea of necropolitics. I mean, have you ever heard that term before? And, you know, she defined it on her bit on MSNBC, but I looked it up and there's a Wikipedia entry for it. And it, I think it just started in 2003. This term was sort of invented. And it's the use of social and political power to dictate how some people may live and how some people must die. So she sees this whole going back to work thing through the prism of race, which really is no surprise because so many of her episodes on MSNBC are race based. But she also sees it as the people in power that are wanting to force the you know, the workers back to work so the people in power can get their stuff. And ultimately, she thinks that by putting people back to in, back to work, that they're going to die as a result. I mean, that's kind of what the whole angle of this whole story is. And it's, it makes you stop and think. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Is that what's happening? But meanwhile, COVID case rates are down. We're in decline. People are learning to live safely. I mean, even when even here in California, you know, we're wearing masks, social distancing. And a lot of times people don't social distance. I was in Costco recently and everyone's wearing masks, but no way in hell are we staying six feet away from each other. But even here in California, case rates are down. People are kind of figuring out how to live, how to be safe, how to be responsible. The vaccines are kicking in. I mean, we still have a ways to go on that. We're also learning how the virus is transmitted. So the whole sanitize, hand sanitizer thing isn't nearly as big of a deal um, as it used to be because we're learning that it's primarily transmitted, you know, through, you know, respiration. Although, you know, hand sanitizers make sense because you're touching your face. But still, I think we're learning as we go. But still, there's a lot of people that are just sort of upset that people are going back to work. And it's not just with Joy Reid and MSNBC talking about Texas and Mississippi, but it's also here in San Diego County. And there's this, there's this really interesting article in the Union Tribune, and it was a La Mesa school district board member um, who linked school reopening with white supremacy. And she's getting a lot of heat from this. And so, you know, again, I'll, I'll include links to this um, article in my show notes. So you'll be able to see. But it, it's it's just remarkable. And I want to go through this article and share with you some of the comments that are made. You know, like I'm a frequent crit critiquer or commentor of our local school district, Poway Unified, Um and you know, we've covered a lot of issues with our local school district, but it's it's great to look at some of these other school districts and what they're doing and the challenges that they're facing and how in some ways they're similar to what we have experienced here in Poway. In other cases, they're different. So this is um, the La Mesa School Board, and they have, they have a five-member board. And um, a school board member's recent comments comparing school reopening efforts with racism has ignited a political firestorm in San Diego County and highlighted racial tensions underlining the school reopening debate. So La Mesa Spring Valley uh, school board member or actually vice president 
and her name is Sharda Bell Fontenot, um, who is the only black member of a five-person school board, said during a recent meeting that forcing staff back to come back to school before the district could ensure they would be vaccinated is akin to white supremacy and slavery. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> now, do you believe that? Do you believe um, that this is akin to white supremacy or slavery, just kind of reopening the schools and getting our kids back into school? Well, well, first of all, no one's being forced. It's not like someone's got a gun to their head and they're being told to go into the school and teach or told to go into the school and you know, be a custodian or, or, you know, be an administrative aide or be a school counselor. I mean, people are still in these jobs by choice. I mean, there's no, there's no force, certainly no slavery. Um, but since she made these, these comments, I mean, you could imagine the, the firestorm this, this kicked up is, you know, and La Mesa is technically East County, right? Um, so since she, um, has since she made those comments, she's become a subject of harassment and racist death threats. And she went on to file a claim with the school district alleging that someone at the district leaked some of her confidential information, which has been used to harass her. And you can see this playing out. I mean, if there is a portion of San Diego County that has, you know, racial issues, racial tension, it's probably going to be in East County. I and mean, that's where you see a lot of these kind of the, what, the, what they call the three percenters, I think. And, and, you know, some of these other kind of Trump groups that are really more hardcore, really more militant, especially on issues of race, where do they come from? They don't come from the South Bay. They don't come from North County Coastal. They don't typically come from downtown San Diego. They're usually in East County. And, and La Mesa, of course, is in East County. Um, now, who who jumps into this this uh, soiree? Of course, is Carl DeMaio. So, right for those of you who don't know, Carl DeMaio is kind of a political animal, you know, and he has run for Congress multiple times. He ran for mayor uh, of San Diego. Um, he served actually his one successful election. He served on the city council, and he lives like here in Rancho Bernardo, not too far from us in Poway. So we we all get to know who Carl DeMaio is. He recently lost running for Congress in East County. You know, even though he lived in Rancho Bernardo, he ran, what was it, the 50th district? And he ran out there but lost to Daryl Issa. But um, DeMaio is an interesting figure. I mean, a lot of people hate him. Um, a lot of people love him. Uh, but he's definitely a political opportunist. And, you know, he was uh, once the gas tax thing came on, you know, he was big on fighting the gas tax. Well, certainly, you know, Carl DeMaio, who's a member of Reform California and you know, the Reform California movement is the whole thing about recalling uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom. So he is announcing, Carl DeMaio is announcing that his group is filing paperwork next week to recall uh, La Mesa School Board Vice President Sharda Belfontenot. So now, now they're calling, they're going to organize a recall of her. And according to DeMaio, the school board member, Bell Fontenot, not only voted to continue to inflict harm on our children by keeping La Mesa Spring Valley schools closed, but her use of false, reckless, and racially divisive smears to attack parents and other community members that support school reopening has created a hostile work environment in the district. So, I mean, this, this is crazy because how often do we hear from teachers, from school board members, from 
people that are admin or you know staff members, essentially the the um, the classified staff, you know, that's in the school board. Or excuse me, that's in the schools and the non-teachers. We hear from them. We hear from the teacher. We hear from the school boards. It's all about the children. We're here for the kids. We love the children, and that's why we're in schools. But in so many cases, there are some people that want to deny providing, te- you know, essentially offering educational services for the children. Um, they want to, in this case, prevent the schools from opening. So, th- th- I mean, in, in many ways, I think you have to look at this and think, are, by keeping these schools closed for so long, are we doing more harm than good? And haven't we reached a point where we can start reopening? And a lot of schools are reopening. In fact, Poway Unified here, I mean, they had to fight, you know, give them credit. They fought uh, to reopen. They had a petition and eventually, I think they fully reopened, have they? I'm not sure. Feel free to chime in on the live stream. I know they opened up K through five, but has Poway Unified also opened up middle school and high school? I know they also just recently started to allow um, high school sports, which I think is fantastic. So little by little, we're opening up, but there's still people that are resisting it. But in this case, um, the La Mesa school board member is resisting it because she's seeing it through a racial lens, a lot of the ways that Joy Reid sees the world through a racial lens. So um, apparently the, the La Mesa school district has been closed to regular person-in-person uh, instruction since the pandemic began. And some of those opposing Bell Fontenot have said that the school closures are harming children. And I think we're learning that this whole COVID pandemic is – you know, granted, people have been, you know, practicing social distancing. They've been staying home, the stay at home order. But it's had a huge mental impact, not just on children, which are you know, in many cases struggling because maybe the, the online schooling hasn't been adequate. In other cases, the, the, they're, you know, they're not having that social aspect to their lives. that's so important in their growth. But even as adults, I mean, speaking for myself, I know I go through periods that, you know, it, this is heavy. It affects us because we can't live our normal life. Um, and we are isolated in a lot of ways, isolated from people we know and love. Um, and it's hard. This whole COVID pandemic is hard. Uh, Pat Johnson on the live stream uh, chiming in. Schools are open, but just a couple of days a week, not five days a week. So, okay, great. So, Pat, I assume you're talking about Poway Unified. That's progress, right? Opening up the schools a little bit. I know when we had um, Pete Murray on, you know, we were when he was on talking about the whole Trump impeachment, he had commented his daughter is a school teacher in Arizona, and they were doing something similar where the students would come in half the class on Monday and Thursday and the other half of the class on Tuesday and Friday. And so they staggered it and they were only in school a couple of week, days a week. I'm not sure what Poway's doing, but it's good. I mean, we're starting to see like movement. You know, we're starting to see not just a return to normalcy, but a return to like education and getting our kids back on track. But if you're going to have the schools open for a few days, you've got to have staff at the schools. Um, now, Bell Fontenot went further with this, and this is interesting. So let's, we're going to look at some of the data here. And Bell Fontenot and her supporters suggested reopening too soon or in an unsafe way would harm families of color because minorities are getting sick and dying of COVID at disproportionately higher rates than whites. And 
in some cases, that's true. In other cases, it's not. But the, the Union Tribune article was very interesting. It shared some of the data. And it said, in San Diego County, Latinos make up 33% of the population, but 48% or nearly half of COVID cases, 43% of COVID deaths. Um, so we're seeing that the Latinos are disproportionately over-affected by COVID, right? So they are having disproportionately more cases, more deaths. Um, and, yeah, that's that's a, that's a problem. And, and I think it's a lot of it's because most of the more the areas that are most impacted by the COVID virus have been mostly South Bay um, zip codes. And, and there tends to be more Latinos that live in South Bay, uh, the southern part of the county, you know, sort of south of Highway 8, south of Highway 94, than live in the rest of the county. So, yeah, I, I get it. And La Mesa, I mean, depending on, you know, Spring Valley, you could argue is more in the southern part of the county. And that's the school district that she presides over. So, but what's interesting is for blacks, it's, it works in the other direction. So uh, black San Diegans make up 5% of the population, but only 3% of COVID cases and 4% of COVID deaths. So um, in this case, while Latinos are overrepresented disproportionately with the negative effects of COVID, the blacks are are underrepresented proportionately. Um, so it's interesting how you look at it. And this kind of gets to the whole topic of equity, right? You know, we, we hear about equity a lot. And that term equity is interesting. I think that's that's going to be a future podcast that we'll cover because, you know, we always heard about equality, right? And we're hearing about income inequality and and wealth inequality. We hear about equality uh, or equal opportunity or equal outcome. And equality is a big thing. But now we're hearing more about equity, right? Which equity is about, in this case, would be about trying to see every race kind of properly proportionately represented as no race would be more or less impacted proportionately to COVID than any other race. And we could apply equity in a lot of other cases, but in a lot of ways, equity is sort of like the the new way of saying equal outcome. Um, and But that's kind of what this data is getting to. And that's how a lot of people see the world, especially when they see the world through a race-based prism. Um, Pow, uh, Pat Johnson goes on to say Poway is doing the same as you just described. So yeah, maybe Poway kids are going half the class on Monday, half the class on Tuesday, then half the class Thursday, half the class Friday. Um, yeah, that's what you know. Pete Murray's daughter was doing. And actually Wednesday was the day they cleaned the class. Uh, the teachers and the staff members cleaned the whole school in between. So it's good, it's good progress. So, but anyways, it, it was interesting that Bell Fontenot brought up some of this data because this data is part of the reason and, and that she is objecting to going back to school, objecting to send uh, to sending more school employees back in. Now, meanwhile, um, another school board member noted that at least 70 percent of the La Mesa Spring Valley parents who answered a survey said they want their kids back in school. That's good news. Um, I think that's terrific. But notice how 70 percent of the parents want their children to go back to school. But the school district is closed. Now, it turned out that La Mesa Spring Valley School District, they voted to reopen and it was a four to one vote. So they're going to reopen. But the one dissenting vote was was Belle Fontenot. And and she was objecting for all these racial reasons. 
But it is interesting to me, like I commented kicking off the podcast about this whole list of systemic racism, institutional racist policies that are enacted by government. And in this, and one of them that I objected to was school choice, which are essentially school vouchers. So imagine if you are a family and you live in Spring Valley and you're maybe a low income family and you may be uh, black or Latino or you might be mixed race. Maybe you're white, you know, you're low income. You're living in Spring Valley and you really want your child to to improve. You want your children to be, you know, to to kind of move up the ladder. You want your ch- I think all of us would like our children to be better off than we were. So each future generation is better off than their parents. I mean, as a parent, we all want that. But imagine if you are a parent living in Spring Valley of modest means of low income and you want your child to go to college, but they can't get educated properly there because the schools are closed. And you might say, well, they have online schooling, but a lot of times the online education, the way it's been set up, some of these school districts rushed into it. They weren't prepared. And some school districts have failed in their implementation of that. Now, imagine if school vouchers existed, then that poor family could instead redirect those education dollars to a private school. Doesn't necessarily have to be a, a religious school, but to a, a, a secular private school and their child could be educated because the private schools have been open for a good amount of time. Or they could actually transfer to a different school district. You know, like, for example, let's just take Poway as an example. Maybe their mom or dad works up here and they commute, God forbid, from Spring Valley to Rancho Bernardo or Spring Valley to Poway or Rancho Penasquitos for their job. Well, imagine they could bring their child and their child can go, the child could go to school here. School vouchers provide that flexibility, give people that escape hatch to not only escape bad schools, but they could be used in this case to escape schools that are shut down. Um, but alas, that's, that's not an option for a lot of these people. But um, Belle Fontenot in the school board meeting went further and she said, That seems like a very white supremacist ideology to force people to comply with and conform without thinking about all of their intersecting factors and barriers that exist for all families. Well, by reopening the schools, nobody's being forced. Like I said, the the school teacher, the school principal, the school counselor, the school administrative aide – The school custodian, none of them have a gun to their head. Nobody's being forced to go back to school uh, or go back to, in this case, go back to work. If they don't feel safe, they don't have to go, you know. So um, I think that's important to understand, but she still sees it as a matter of force, which I think is just odd. And I think that's why she jumps to a lot of other kind of more, you know, frankly, outrageous conclusions. She went on to say in the school board meeting, I don't want to be part of forcing anybody to do anything they don't want to do. That's what slavery is. <laughs> and and I agree with her. We don't want to force anybody to do what they don't want to do. So if the school reopens and they don't and certain workers don't feel safe, then just don't go to work. You know, so quit your job, find another job, find a job where you think you can work more safely. But really, I mean, if you think about it, 
where is the greater risk with the COVID virus? Is it in schools or is it in non-school environments? Because schools are generally, I mean, granted, normally you think of children as sort of a Petri dish for every kind of bacteria and virus. But still, I think the COVID um, rates amongst children are a lot lower than they are of adults. So the risk levels are a lot lower in school, you know, based on my, you know, non-scientific understanding of the data. Um, now, the good news is, is that the San Diego, San Diego County has, um, has actually decided to prioritize getting vaccines to people that are in education. And so they're going to be dedicating 20 percent of the supply of vaccines to all the education staff, not just teachers, but everybody that's in education, you know, which is great because – Getting the schools reopened and reopened properly is a big, big deal. And it's and it's not just so the children can be educated, which is obviously, you know, the prime directive. That's the main thing. But there's so many cascading effects to close schools because when the schools are closed, then who's going to watch the kids? And a lot of times you have, two, you know, working families, both parents working, and, and some of those families – They've been fortunate to work from home, but in a lot of cases, they can't work from home. So then who has to watch the children? A lot of times now those parents have to leave their job because they got to stay home and watch the kid, uh, where prior they were, the kid was in school. And then maybe after school, they went to, you know, here in Poway, we called it ESS, Extended Student Services, which is kind of like a daycare uh, for the couple of hours after school until the parents got off work. Well, when, the, when you have two, dual working parents... Or a single, imagine a single mom, even more challenging. Now you don't have that support mechanism that used to exist that you kind of built your whole parental strategy around. It doesn't exist. With my wife and and her work, she's she's seen that firsthand where some of her coworkers have to quote unquote call in sick, but they have to do that because there was no one to watch the, the kid, you know, maybe they, grandma could help watch or a neighbor, but sometimes they couldn't work it out. So getting these schools reopened is critical to getting people back to work and getting sort of getting a rhythm back to the way our society works. Um, And the more we fight against opening the schools, not only are we harming children in the process who are now isolated away from their friends, away from the social aspects of growing up and learning to work with people, not only are they also being denied of their educational opportunity, but a lot of these kids are depressed because they're home alone. And then they're even, their nose is even deeper into their phones or social media and anything else. So the situation just gets worse. Uh, Pat Johnson on the live stream chimes in where I, uh, where I agree with most of her comments, but her references and inflammatory comments are not good in circumstance. And I agree with you, Pat. In some cases, she has a fair case to make, like where Latinos disproportionately are more affected by the COVID virus. But when you start talking about this is white supremacy and slavery, it's like, well, wait a minute. Now, I will say this, is that a lot of this discussion of, now granted, slavery, I mean, we all know what slavery is. I mean, that's <laughs> that, that comment's way out of bounds. Now, white supremacy, I used to think, come on, man, what are you talking about? But Again, you know, I tell you, I, I listen and I learn and I try to grow and I listen to Joy Reid when she's on MSNBC. And, and yeah, you know, a lot of uh, there is a lot of white supremacy in America. And a lot of times it manifests itself in our laws 
including that laundry list of laws that I talked about to kick off the podcast, um, like uh, like the war on drugs and mass incarceration and driving while black and 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 school vouchers. And I mean, there's the list is gigantic. Um, voter suppression and Jim Crow laws and yada, yada. So there's, yeah, there's been white supremacy. Now, now is this a case of white supremacy? I don't know. I mean, that's how Joy Reid sees it. She says, we want to send those workers back so they can make us our stakes, send them back into the factory. I want the nail salons to open, you know, so these worker bees can take care of me, the rich, affluent person. But in so many ways, I think, they're not realizing the benefits to, to work, which I'm going to get into here in just a minute. But the, the article went on further and it said that um, and this is an interesting nugget and that black and Latino Americans are more likely than white Americans to prefer full time online learning rather than returning to school in person. This is interesting. Now, I always contended that there were going to be some silver linings from the covid pandemic. One of them has been work from home because more people working from home, I'm, I'm discovering based on – granted, I've been working from home for over 10 years. But I've witnessed with my clients and some of their employees working from home, those employees are more productive than they were in the office. They're getting more stuff done. Um, working from home, those people are not only more productive, they're happier because they can now balance their – work-life situation. They can take their kids to a doctor's appointment and they can be flexible and it works out okay. Um, And then obviously there's less people on the road. So there's less traffic, less congestion, less carbon emissions. I mean, we can go down the list. Now, the other part of that is more online learning. Now, a lot of these school districts, they failed in online learning, especially a lot of the public schools. They weren't ready. Some of the private schools kind of already had a head start. But I think Online learning, especially like for high school and, and maybe middle school, but not, you know, not for first grade, but for definitely for high school and middle school, there's opportunities where online learning can be a huge win for these students, not only that they can have greater exposure to the best teachers. I mean, imagine that you're at Poway High School and you've got I don't know, two chemistry teachers. And, you know, they're good, but they're not great. But meanwhile, there's a a kick butt chemistry teacher that works at Mount Carmel. Um, but if you're a, and you, and let's say you want to go into the sciences and and you wish you had that chemistry teacher, well, you can't access them if you're if you're at Poway High. You can't go to Mount Carmel High to take that chemistry class. If we had online learning now, suddenly we could lift up the best chemistry teacher in the district who then could be doing some of these online lectures, online experiments. I mean, it opens up the world of education that we can be very innovative in some of the things that we do, not only exposing our students to to new teachers, new ways of thinking, new innovations, but it also could save school districts money. There'd be less need for classrooms and overhead. And, and it could make, you know, because school districts are struggling to be financially solvent. I mean, Poway Unified is going through their own, you know, financial struggle, which they've been it's been going on for a long time, but there are ways to cut spending and actually improve access to quality education through online learning, but it has to be done right. And I think a lot of these school districts haven't been doing it right, but it's good news that, you know, in this case, um, black and Latino Americans are more likely to prefer online learning than whites. So 
Uh, Pat Johnson goes on to say, uh, but when you talk about ethnic groups that are more affected than others, the key to remember is this is an airborne virus that has no boundaries where it goes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the, the virus doesn't racially discriminate. Um, but I think it's true that, you know, certainly the, the virus doesn't seek out um, Latinos or blacks or whites or whatever. Um, but, you know, people that have more financial resources probably have more flexibility, more – they have more resources to manage their family through the pandemic. Um, I think, you know, there are cases where, um, you know, depending on people's circumstances – and this could vary – from race to race or even within races, but certain households have a lot more people in, ha- in the house than others. And that gives the airborne virus more opportunity to spread. There are certain people, and again, this may or may not break down by racial lines, that believe in the crisis or not believe in the crisis or believe the science or not believe the science. So there's a whole bunch of reasons how this breaks down. But Pat, you're right. The, it's an airborne virus and the airborne virus doesn't discriminate. Um, and Belle Fontenot went on to say she objected to her colleagues' plans, not because it went too far, but because it did not go far enough to ensure that students return to a learning environment that is equally safe and supportive for every single one of them. Like, equally safe. I mean, how could it be equally safe? I mean, even if everyone got everyone got vaccinated, it's still not equally safe. I mean, because, again, the virus doesn't discriminate and, and people behave unequally. Some people are really militant about six foot uh, social distancing and other people don't care. So they'll never be what I'll call equally safe. Uh, Pat Johnson goes on to say, I do agree. Resources are being spent disproportionately across different ethnic groups. Yeah. Well, people of means can afford maybe to have a parent stay home. Uh, People of means um, might be in a household where there's more square footage per person living there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it can break down. I mean, really, it's more not necessarily racial or ethnic, but it's really socioeconomic is really the thing, because that blends in a lot of things, you know, particularly income um, and, and and race and a lot of other factors. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, there is an impact. So I think when Belle Fontenot is objecting to this, I get it. I understand where she's coming from with some of this data. But still, I mean, you know, school districts need to provide services for children. The COVID case rate is in steep decline. We're already ratcheting down in some of the tiers. Now, I know we don't want to open up too soon, but we can't wait until it's like perfectly safe because that that doesn't exist. There is no such thing. So it was just a really interesting article. And, um, you know, thanks for letting me go through it with you. But um, I want to. You know, it's. It, I want to kind of really get now here to sort of this idea of the value of work, because in here, you know, why are why are some people very resistant to going back to work now? Now that we're in decline, why is Joy Reid upset that there's no mask mandate in Texas and businesses are now starting to open? Um, in in this case, why is Belle Fontenot on the La Mesa School Board, La Mesa Spring Valley School Board? She's upset. Um, that, you know, we're going back to normal. We're opening up the schools. Now, for her, she sees it as an issue of race, of slavery, of white supremacy. Um, and we've gone through the data and, you know, I kind of made my comments on that. But other people see it as a safety issue. That's probably a more dominant theme. Um, but keep in mind that 
that we've had healthcare workers out there fighting the good fight for months, for like almost a year now, then they didn't have the vaccine until just about a month ago. Um, so healthcare workers have been out there fighting the good fight. And we've seen people working regular jobs, you know, in a grocery store or at a hardware store or any kind of local business. And they're working, but they're doing it safely. They're wearing masks. They're, they're social distancing. They're, you know, people aren't shaking hands like they used to. I mean, people have been adapting to this sort of new normal. And that's been a part of the reason why we're seeing the case rate go in decline. I think another part of the reason we're seeing it, you know, where the vaccines, we're starting to see more and more people vaccinated. The weather is getting better. So more people are outdoors. There's a lot of factors that are going into this. So you can't, uh, some people are just so focused on safety that they want to violate everyone's freedom, everyone's liberty in the name of safety. But we all know that's a bad trade-off. I mean, was it Benjamin Franklin? I think had a famous quote about that. Um, so if you give up, how's it go? If you give up liberty to get safety, you usually end up with neither. Um, so that's what we're kind of dealing with is that mentality. Now, other people see this as a class issue, right? And I think Joy Reid, to a degree, was seeing it that way, where it was the affluent sort of putting the boot on the neck of the people that were, you know, more lower income, you know, those frontline workers, people that work in restaurants or nail salons were the two, you know, the two examples she cited. But I still think that a lot of this is driven from the point of view that a lot of people just don't value work. And that's what I really want to get into. So before we do, I just want to, you know, put this out there. You know, we're trying to build this podcast audience. So I love your support and thank you for your support. Uh, but you can do some things to help out. And really, you if you're watching or listening right now, you would be the best advocate to help us grow this audience. And how do you do it? Well, like these episodes. I mean, we've got three people on the live stream, but only one like. So if you like what you're seeing, you know, click on the like button. Share this with other people, you know, share it, you know, share an episode online or just tell a friend about it. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, those are all huge things that can help us grow this audience. And I, I couldn't do it without your support. So thank you for that. OK, so now let's talk a little bit about this notion of the value of work. Now, again, I'm not saying that people that are objecting to going back to work after the COVID uh, virus as the pandemic begins to lessen, hasn't gone away, uh, but it's definitely, the crisis is lower. I'm not saying everyone that's objecting to going back to work doesn't value work. Some people do, um, but other people have varying reasons, but there's definitely a certain section of society that for them, you know, work is a drag, man. Work is a grind. I mean, who wants to go to work, you know, but I commented about this on a previous podcast. And by the way, thank you. The likes clicked up on that. I appreciate that. Um, I commented on a previous podcast about productivity. We we're talking about, you know, Pete Neal and I were talking about the flow charts in your mind. And, and I was talking about how negative self-esteem can be flipped to positive self-esteem, usually when we're productive, when we're getting things done, when we're checking the boxes off our to-do list, um, we can go from a negative energy flow to a positive energy flow when we're aware and then we dive into our productivity. Productivity builds self-esteem. And I don't think a lot of people really understand that at its face value. If they think about it, they probably like 
will go, oh yeah, maybe it does. But I don't think people typically see it in those terms because in my opinion, no matter what you do in, in, in your work and work could be a lot of things. I mean, work could be a job, work could be being a student, work could be being a stay at home mom. I mean, work could be a lot of things, but I'm typically talking about it in the context of your career, of your job. But it's something, work is something that we should take pride in. I mean, it's something that we should feel good about what we do. Not necessarily um, seeing it as a, as a grind or a chore, because I think when people see their job that way, I, I think it's the wrong frame of mind. It's, it's not the right perspective, because as long as you think of your work as a grind, as a chore, then you're going to work will become that <laughs> you will fulfill your own prophecy and and it will drag down your self-esteem when you see it in those in that view but if we are accomplishing things in our job and it could be it, i mean it doesn't necessarily need to be that you're a scientist finding a cure for cancer i mean you could be a frontline worker at a retail uh, store like target or walmart or working in a restaurant um, it could be you know relatively simple tasks but just the notion of being productive, getting things done, you're proving that you have value. And when you are seeing that you're making an impact for fellow employees and for customers and for your boss, and you hear thank you, that also is another way to feel good about what you're doing because you're making a difference. You're moving the needle. You can begin to take pride in yourself and your self-esteem actually is lifted up when you really embrace your work and see it as a net positive. It's not just an avenue for a paycheck, although that's important. The work itself is what helps build us up. Now, um, here's another interesting angle to this. And it's a, what you do, the work you do is kind of your choice on how you're going to live your life, right? So some people take their careers very seriously. Some people um, really give a lot of thought to what they do, and 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 they've gone to college or they've gone in various things in their in their life that actually have gotten them on track to do what they want to do. Other people haven't quite figured things out. You know, to some degree, I'm still figuring things out, and I'm in my mid fifties. But it's important that you see your work as a choice, a choice, an individual choice on how you are going to live your life. And it's not just a way that you can improve your own life, but it's also a way that you can improve the life of the world around you, the people around you. And if you essentially, you know, take charge of your life, take charge of your work, I mean, this is how you get on track to ultimately flourish. I mean, you look at the people that have been very, very successful, they, they a lot of times were doing what they love. They were working in an industry or working in a job they just love to do. And it's that mindset that really changes the way, the way you approach your work. Now, I get it though. I, I mean, I know some jobs suck. <laughs> I mean, I've been there. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, this is funny. I was like 19, probably 1980, or 81. And I got a job at the local Arco gas station um, near me. Uh, I was raised up in Burlingame. This was out like kind of right now by the freeway exit, there was an Arco station. And this is right when um, they had the uh, pay first was a, a, became a thing. You know, before that you would just 
pump your gas or the, the, the gas station attendant would pump it for you. And then you would pay afterwards. Well, this is when they said you have to walk up to the little booth and give them a credit card or give them cash, likely a $20 bill that was gonna, back then would have more than easily filled up your tank and then get your change afterwards. I mean, that was a difficult concept for a lot of people to understand. And I was working in that little glass booth and people would get angry. These old men would come like banging on there, turn on the damn gas pump. And, and I was you know, managing that. It was a great job because I worked it in the evenings. I was able to do my homework while I was there, but we also had a car wash. And you can imagine that, you know, you know, the car wash, you have to get your wheel like in that track. And then like this little, I guess like a conveyor wheel kind of gets in front of your car wheel and either pushes or pulls you, I think pushes you through the car wash. Well, underneath that track, there was like a gully and a lot of the dirt that came off the cars went in there. And my boss said to me, he goes, I need you to clean this out. And and he says, I'll pay extra for it because it was a crappy job. And I was like, you know, 16, 17 years old. I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it, you know. And I regret that choice. I mean, I was in there, literally, it was like sludge and it was thick and it was stinky and disgusting because it was all the crap that had come off the cars in the car wash that didn't get washed away, that was kind of caught in this, like a trap underneath the car wash. Oh my God, that was awful. But I mean, I've done other like crappy jobs. Like, you know, I told you in a previous episode, I was a dishwasher at a restaurant working illegally for less than the minimum wage when I was 14 years old, but that was still financially a good job for me. And I learned a lot of things, but you know, being a dishwasher is certainly not a glamorous job. I worked in the school cafeteria quite a bit when I was in college. I mean, I worked all the way through college. Um, And so you know, and I know there's a lot of crappy jobs that exist out there. Um, Pat Johnson says, my worst job was working at a graveyard digging graves. Only lasted one day. Really? You did that, Pat? You were a grave digger? Grave digger. You know, like one of those uh, monster trucks, you know. So, uh, wow. I mean, that's that's a job right there, man. But at least you did it for a day. At least you could tell people you were a grave digger. But, oh, my God, that must have been an awful job. I mean, not only are you literally digging ditches, which is hell, but you're doing it to bury people, which just kind of has a gruesome angle to it. So I realize there's a lot of crappy jobs out there. And then, and then even in my professional career, um, maybe this has happened to you where, you know, you get into a job and it's great. And then the job kind of goes south on you. Right. And for whatever reason, maybe it's you know your boss you don't like working for your boss, or maybe your coworkers are a problem, or maybe your company is just a disaster, or maybe they treat you poorly, or you know a lot of times I've been in situations where you know you're so dissatisfied with your job that you don't want to go in, you just want to call in sick, you just want to avoid it, and whenever you get to that stage, you know that you need to get out of that job because. The work that you do, if, you, if you're doing it right, and it doesn't matter what kind of job it is. I mean, it could even be a grave digger, like what Pat was saying. If you approach it the right way, your work should lift you up. Um, now, granted, hard to be lifted up when you're literally digging a hole down <laughs> like Pat was doing. Um, and Pat goes on to say, yeah, he was a ditch digger in high school for a grave digger in high school. But 
if your job isn't giving you those, you know, positive feelings, that's not lifting you up, then you know you got to quit that job. I mean, right away. But a lot of people will just stay in. They'll just stay in the grind. Now, I know for me, I, I gosh, when I got out of college, my first job, I worked for Wang Laboratories. And maybe you've heard of them. They were like a, they were a big time computer company in the 1980s. Uh, for a while, they were sort of the darlings of Wall Street. They they invented, not invented, but you know, maybe you could say they were the, the main um, innovators in the world of word processing, uh, especially in the early 80s. And I went to work for them. And, and then um, I remember uh, I was a salesperson for them. And as we got into the late 80s, I'd, I'd been there for a couple of years. And it, they treated me really well. And, and I went through all this training, and it was fantastic. It was really good corporate training. I was trained for a full year after I got out of college which was unbelievable, um, not only in the industry, but also uh, trained on selling and on a lot of other aspects of the business world. I'm very grateful for that job. But as we got into about 1989, 1990, this is when the PC revolution was really into high gear and businesses were um, embracing local area networks. And so mid-range computers like uh, the, the systems that Wang sold or even systems that were sold by digital. Um, remember the DEC computers, um, s- systems that were sold by Data General and Unisys. And a lot of those computer companies from the 80s, they had these mid-range systems. Um, a lot of them were being replaced by local area networks, like Novell was getting going. And, um, and so Wang struggled they financially struggled there in the late eighties and, you know, they eventually went, they went out of business and like around, I don't know, maybe 93 or so. I think I mentioned before in another podcast, they were huge innovators in some categories. They had a tablet computer like the iPad in 1988 or 89. It was unbelievable, but it was so far ahead of where people's minds were. They couldn't embrace it. Well, anyways, I was working here in San Diego and I was a sales rep and I was, covering, um, you know, all the city governments. Those are my clients and, and the state government accounts as well. And it was a good vertical market to be in as a salesperson. Well, the city of Oceanside was putting in a whole new computer system and they went out to RFP, right? And these RFPs, requests for proposals, it's like a really detailed document. And, you know, if, if you were fortunate to sort of be friendly with the IT director or the CFO, before the RFP comes out, your company could maybe influence the content of that RFP. I didn't have that advantage, but I really wanted to respond to this because the things that they were asking for were right in our wheelhouse of the service products and services we offered. And I remember I spent, gosh, so much time, I mean, really preparing this custom proposal that just one by one went right down, addressed all their needs. I mean, literally lined it up perfectly. It was a really attractive price. I went in there, I submitted it on time. And here I am, I'm like 24 years old. And I was just feeling really good about that. I felt like, I, man, I did it. I did everything right. And I'm, I don't know if I'm going to win this job, uh, but I know that I put in my best effort and I felt good about that, right? Like I said, productivity lifts your self-esteem. Well, we ended up losing the deal. I can't remember who got it. Digital might've won that business. Um, And then what I did is I contacted the IT director afterwards and I said, listen, man, I go, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I know we didn't win the bid, but I was wondering if you you wouldn't mind setting up an appointment 
with me and my manager, what we want to do is we just want to hear why you didn't choose us. And so he was grateful and he welcomed us in. And we sat down, it was up in you know, the, the city hall up there in the in Oceanside. And he basically told us that um, I couldn't make a decision to invest in your company because your company is financially unstable. And I can't risk my career by recommending to my city that we buy, you know, we spend hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars on this computer system when your company could be out of business in two or three years. That made sense. You know, it's kind of like that old IBM ad where they said no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Well, he, I I told him, I said, man, I understand. I, I respect your choice. Now, I didn't say this out loud, but I was thinking to myself, if I was in his shoes, I probably would have made the same choice because I didn't really understand that from his perspective. You know, I was only 24, um, but I got it. And so from that point on, my job sucked. I hated it because I figured, why am I here? I mean, I, I can't be successful because my company is holding me back. So I quit and I eventually went to another job. And so a lot of the jobs that I've had um, have always lifted me up, but they often have gotten to a point where for whatever reason, the job was holding me back from you know, achieving my goals and my aspirations. It might've been the company and the company strategy. It might've been the people. It may have been the culture. It may have been the organizational chart with a bunch of lifers, you know, that have been with the company forever. And there was really no opportunity to, to be promoted. Um, and I've been in those situations where your job sucks, but now I'm in business for myself and I've been in business for myself since Oh four is when I quit my day job and went into business on my own full time. And I'll tell you what, man, I can't, I can't blame anyone now. I can't say my company's holding me back or my boss is holding me back. The only person that's holding me back is me. And I'll tell you what, that's even harder because I know I hold myself back. I know that there are things that I do that I struggle. And I've had moments in my career where I've hated my job. But then I realized that the problem isn't someone else. The problem is me. And then I refocus myself and I work to get better. And the whole process of being self-employed, being a business owner is so rewarding. Um, it's the biggest, you know, career challenge I've ever had in my life, but it is unbelievably rewarding and has lifted me up. Um, you know, my self-esteem has risen dramatically overall as a result of doing this. But still, I mean, I guess my point I'm getting at is that I understand that for some people, their job sucks and it and it could be difficult and they don't take pride in what they do. And it's just a grind. And the only reason they work that crappy job is so they can get paid. And, go, oh, you know, if the government could shut down the company they work for and just give them an unemployment check, they would probably be happier. Right. Because they just be able wouldn't have to go to work. but They still be able to pay their bills. But it's. um in many ways, I think that's that's damaging for a lot of other reasons, because if you're not being productive, especially if you're isolated in a, in a pandemic, you know, mentally that harms you and, and mentally that can drag you down. You you need to find ways to be productive, to embrace work as a necessary good, not a necessary evil. Your job is a necessary good because it provides that opportunity to have success, to get things done, to make impacts not only in your life, but the lives of your customers and employees and fellow coworkers and your suppliers, et cetera. 
the work you do can lift you up. And it really has to be looked at uh, from that perspective. Uh, Pat Johnson goes on to say, the best advice um, that I gave my kids was find a job. When you wake up in the morning, you're happy to go to work. And when you're at work, you're making a difference. And when it's time to go home, you're in no hurry to leave. And Pat says, that's the kind of job I have now. And yeah, Pat, I see you, man. You're traveling all over the world doing great things. Um, Finding a job that you love is not easy. Um, It's hard. Um, A lot of times people don't know what they want to do. People don't know what it's like to be happy in their job. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to find a job that is this sort of utopian um, job that like a unicorn that it's hard to find and hard to achieve. A lot of times regular jobs, ordinary jobs, if you approach it with the right mindset can deliver exactly what Pat Johnson just said, where the, you wake up in the morning and you're happy to go to work. And when you're at work, you're making a difference in people's lives. And when it's time to go home, you're in no hurry to leave. Even working in a restaurant or working at Target or Walmart or doing any kind of what we might call non-glamorous work um, is something that we can take pride in. Because ultimately, you're providing a service to other people. And ultimately, if you approach the right way, this is just one step in your future career. You know, that job that you have, uh, maybe doing something unglamorous, if you approach it with the right perspective, you're learning, you're growing, you're meeting people, and you're developing skills, and then you're able to parlay those skills and that experience into a job that's better with someone else that pays more. And then you can begin working your way up. But if you approach an unglamorous job with the wrong attitude, that it's a grind and this sucks and my boss sucks and oh this is this sucks. Well then you're not going to deliver for your your boss or for your customers and you're going to be less productive and you may not even last in that job. And you'll never be in a situation or it'll be difficult to be in a situation where you can find something better. So a lot of times it, it's it's your frame of mind and what you're doing as you approach it. The other interesting part of this is how often have you been, I don't know, meeting someone for the first time or you're at a party and you get that classic question, what do you do? And I struggle with this because sometimes you want to tell people your job. Um, But I've had moments where I've told people really the impact that I make in the world as opposed to the physical thing that I do, the d- details of what I do, like, I, cause I own a marketing agency. And so like, sometimes I'll tell people like, what do you do? And I'll say, well, I do digital marketing and search engine optimization and I do database marketing and I can go through the, the, the nuts and bolts of it all. But, and then usually their eyes glaze over and they're like, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> and they talk to the next guy. But I, sometimes I'll say, you know what I do is I help businesses prosper. I help businesses grow. I help businesses find new customers. And I've got special ways that I do that. And then instantly they're like, oh, oh, tell me more. Tell me more about what you do. And I think if we approach our careers from that perspective, what do you do? It's, it's a great thing to think about is, is to have an answer for that question and have an answer that, that is obviously real. It's truthful, but it frames it in a way 
that you're proud of what you do. And that can change your whole mindset about how you go about your day. Because then you really understand the higher purpose of what you're trying to accomplish. It's that kind of an approach that work can be so valuable to you to lift yourself up, to build your self-esteem and build your self-confidence. But still, a lot of people drift in their careers, right? Like you ask them, like you're working for a company and how'd you get a work, a job here? Well, I knew a guy who knew a guy and now I'm doing this and you're just doing it. And is it something you love? No, not really. Does it pay well? Well, maybe, but it's not like, it's just a job, right? It's not a career. It's not something you take pride in. And when someone says, what do you do? You might not have an answer to that question you're particularly prideful of. There's a lot of people that do that, or, or they just work in bad jobs and they just, for whatever reason, choose to remain in those bad jobs. They don't see an exit strategy. They don't see a way to build skills and experience and network and parlay that into better jobs with better money and better working conditions. They don't see it. And so they just sort of drift through life, right? They don't prioritize career. And ultimately, they don't prioritize themselves. They're not thinking of themselves. They're not taking their life seriously. That's why getting people to go back to work after this COVID crisis is so important because it's how we take control of, of our lives. It's how we demonstrate to ourselves that we're serious about what we're doing in our life and that we literally are on a mission, not just a mission to satisfy customers, like a mission statement for a company, but we're on a mission to be all that we can be, to, to borrow a, a, a line from the U.S. military. Um, we're on a mission to flourish in life, to, to live according to our own values, to experience everything the life has to offer. We should be on a mission to do that. And the only way you can get on track to, to fulfill that mission is that you have to work. You have to work at it. And you have to be in a career that provides the necessary you know, financial rewards, but also you meet the right people and get connected in the right situations and find the right kind of work that gets you on that track so you can, you can take flight. Uh, it's so critical. And that's when I see people wanting to shut the government or government people wanting to shut down parts of the economy, I'm just thinking, oh, my God. I mean, never mind the fact that this economic shutdown is like just massively damaged businesses. People have seen their livelihoods just, you know, things, things that they've worked for years to build, decades to build, to see it lost in a moment because, you know, some governor or county supervisor voted to to call all gymnasiums illegal. Um, we're seeing a lot of destruction because of this. Um, and then never mind the fact that, you know, the, the government is going into insane debt about, you know, and all this debt that's being accumulated, you know, we're going these, there's a new, what, 1.9 trillion stimulus that's coming. And we talked about that in a previous podcast. Now, you know, the, the, the classic line is you never hear the Republicans complain about the debt until the Democrats president. And that's true. Um, but I wish the Democrats and Republicans were more focused on debt. But now it just seems, well, you know, we're going into another re recession, this time by the government's choosing to shut things down, which I think they went way too far on this. Um, but they're shutting it down and then building up even more and more debt. And gosh, I think when when Obama was done, I think the national debt was like around 19 or 20 trillion. Right now, I think it's like 27 trillion. And we're going to be at 30 trillion here in no time. 
well, who pays for that? Well, it's not going to be us. I mean, although we'll be paying interest on the debt, the people that are going to be paying for it, really not even our children, it's going to be like our grandchildren, if at all, if it ever does get paid. And so sometimes I think, you know, that is like, frankly, it's immoral. It really is in a lot of ways to, is, is to create debt that you aren't the one that has to pay back, that you're really dumping that on future generations. I, this always struck, strikes me as very immoral, but it is what it is. And people are like, well, you know what? If I don't have to work and the government's going to pay me, then they're good with that. And because I think those are the people that don't necessarily value work. Those are the people that, now granted, I'm not saying everyone that's out of work feels that way. There's a lot of people that are out of work that want to go back to work. There's a lot of people that are out of work that want other people to go back to work so they can so they can go out to a, a restaurant and sit down over dinner with their family. There's a lot of people that want others to go back to work so they can see their community and their their local economy begin to thrive. But there's a lot of people that want to go to back to work because they want to go back to work. They want to get their life on track and they want to be able to get their life back in the rhythm that they had, especially if they're a parent with children. They want the schools to reopen so their child goes back to school and so that they're not living this chaotic situation of you're not sure if it's open or not. And and then it makes it even worse, right, when the, the government opens them and then closes them and then opens them partly and then closes them again and they do the same thing with schools. I mean, it's hell. And that's another reason why so many people are so mentally distressed coming through this COVID crisis. So I'm I'm a big supporter. of We need to get back to normal as fast as we can. And there's a risk to it. I get it. Um, would it have made sense to, to be 100% back to normal last summer? You know, probably not. Or 100% back to normal in October of last year? Well, probably not. But we could have been, to a degree, much more back at work then and still done it safely. Because businesses were already open with people doing social distancing and wearing masks and being safe. And, and we were able to manage it to the best of our ability. So I always think that they've gone too far on it. Um, but yeah, you know, back to the whole notion of drifting in your career. I mean, how many times, you know, people, and I felt this way too, where, where you're in a job and you don't like the job and you hate it and you're like, yeah, this sucks. But you're afraid to take the next job. You're afraid because you don't know what the next job could be. It could be worse. Oh, my God. Or that next job, you know, you don't know who it is. And sometimes it's, what's that saying? It's the devil, you know, you know, so even though your job sucks, at least you know it. You understand where all the dead bodies are, not to, you know, no pun intended, Pat, with your grave digging, but you know where all the dead bodies are. So you know how to maneuver, even if it's a bad situation. Some people are afraid to, to do new things. Sometimes I see people that are afraid, and I, I remember I was like this when I started my own business. I was afraid to quit my day job, even though I liked my day job. You know, you're just fearful of the unknown. Um, but yeah, it turned out great. I mean, I I was able to get new customers and build my business, and it worked. I had another friend of mine who um, worked for the same company I did, and he was doing web development on the side. And he really wanted to do it full time. And I told him, I said, you know what? If you quit your job, I know that's scary, but it's like, um, it's like a field of dreams, you know, build it and they will come. If you build your business and you're the right kind of person doing it for all the right reasons, you will get customers. I believe in you. 
And he told me that made a big difference. And he went and he quit his job and he took his moonlighting business. And now he's been doing it full time for at least 10 years, maybe like 12 or 13 years. And good for him. Um, but sometimes people are in really crappy jobs, but they don't want to leave their crappy job until they got another job in their hand. And I get that because people, they can't afford to be without income. But sometimes I wonder if the damages that people have mentally of staying in bad jobs, if that is more crushing to them, to their spirit, their self-esteem, their ego, everything, if that puts them into a state of depression because they hate their job so much that they're really self-damaging themselves to a far greater degree than whatever that risk is of quitting that job that sucks, even before you got a new one. Quitting the job that sucks and having confidence in yourself that you can go out there and find a new one. Because if you're a good employee, there are good jobs out there. I'm not saying it's easy to find them. But if you're in a job that sucks, that really sucks, well, you know, you can't do worse than that, right? <laughs> so at least there are other opportunities that are out there that should be pursued. So, so I look back on that and I always thought if I had to do it all over again, there would have been other, some jobs I would have quit much sooner than I did. I wish I would have. I wish I had more confidence in myself. And of course, the confidence comes from self-esteem and you do, you build your self-esteem by building, you know, by doing productive work. And, but sometimes it could be a vicious negative cycle and people get trapped in that and they hold themselves back. And I, I, I'm doing that too. I'm, I, I sometimes hold myself back in my own business. It's, it's hard. So after this whole COVID crisis, you know, I, I, I really, it's, it's important, I think, that we get schools open, we get people back to work. And I know it's not 100% safe, but we have to get ourselves back into that rhythm of having our life back on track, doing productive work, making a difference in the world around us, helping other people, and in turn, letting them help you, creating those win-win relationships win-win outcomes with your employers, with your customers, with your fellow employees. Those kinds of productive win-win relationships is what lifts us up and lifts up our self-esteem and self-confidence. But really, the work you do is just really an expression of your own values, right? It's kind of like what I talked about with um, in the beginning. It's, it's, it's a way we can pursue our own happiness, like this podcast, all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the work you do is a way you can pursue your happiness, live your life according to your own values. I mean, doctors are doctors because not just because it makes a lot of money, but they want to help people, right? They, to them, it's important that they're, they're, they're um, you know, helping their cl clients, their patients get healthy. Um, scientists Sure, they're in it for the money, but they they want to cure diseases. I mean, like you look here in San Diego County with the biotech community. I mean, these scientists are inventing these amazing new medicines and new medical devices that are going to let people live longer. Um, these people are passionate about that kind of work, and they're in it because they love it, and they're in it to win. Um, but they're living their own values. They're like what Pat said. They're in a job where when you wake up in the morning, you can't wait to go. When you're doing the work, 
you're happy and, 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 and feeling good about yourself and the people that you're helping. And when it's time to go home, you, you're, you don't leave right away. I mean, how many times do we have those jobs where it's five o'clock and people can't wait to get out of the office to punch out and get out of there? That's an indication that the job sucks or they don't have the right mental approach and they're not valuing the value of work. They see it as a grind, as a chore. When the perspective of seeing work as a way to make yourself better and to give you self-confidence, self-esteem is critical. But even like if you're a retail clerk, and I mentioned Target a lot because you know Target's down the street from us, but even if you're a retail clerk at Target, I mean, that work you do is, you know, you're helping people. You're helping people get the things they need to make their life better. Um, and then besides, you're helping yourself. You're earning an income. Maybe you're becoming self-sufficient. You know, you're taking care of you. That's better than having someone else take care of you. Now, sure, it'd be great, you know, didn't have to work and you just, you know, chilled and enjoyed yourself and not having to work. But not working, I think, is damaging. Not working is harmful. I mean, even you look at the richest people that are out there, they still work, but in their own way. I mean, even Bill Gates, I mean, he works. I mean, Bill Gates puts in a lot of effort with the COVID vaccine or the, yeah, he was part of that process. Um, Bezos, I mean, up until recently, he's been CEO of Amazon. He's been working his tail off and he's the richest man in the world. It's not like he said, well, I'm already rich. I'm going to check out and go live on a yacht and just sail the Mediterranean he stayed productive and he did it for a reason because he knew that's what gave him his life purpose and joy. I mean, Steve Jobs, especially talk about a guy that lived his values. Talk about a guy that had a vision for what he wanted to accomplish and wanted to build something that made a difference in the world. I mean, the iPhone revolutionary technology, the iPod, I mean, Really, the transformation of the music into digital was a huge deal. He takes pride in his work. And granted, I'm citing famous guys that are richer than you know what and and are big time CEOs. But we have to see our work as much more than just a reason to get a paycheck, much more than just a grind, just a chore. Um, and I mean, even like here with my podcast, um, you know, granted, I'm still working for my company. I, I still have my own business. I'm still doing consulting work. I'm still doing projects for my clients and I'm enjoying it. But this podcast itself gives me great pride, gives me great self-esteem. I come in front of this camera three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at two o'clock, you know, with some ex exceptions, but I enjoy this. And I think, you know, I, I don't have the biggest audience in the world, but I think I'm making my own difference in my own way. And I think I'm helping people in my own way, especially when I was interviewing political candidates. I was helping educate voters on what these candidates were all about. So I think that's a good thing. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, of my future. And granted, I'm in my mid-50s, but, you know, soon I'll be in my 60s. And not far after that, I'll be in my 70s. And I'm thinking to myself, what's something that I could do and be productive doing and making a difference in the world doing I'm thinking, well, I could do this. Um, and I think this is a powerful thing. And so I'm investing a lot of my time and energy on figuring out ways to monetize this podcast and make the podcast better. And, and you know, I, I have my ups and downs at it, but I'm working and I'm trying and I'm experimenting, I'm innovating and I'm failing. And then I fail again and then I'm successful. And then when I'm successful, I'm really happy. 
and it builds my self-esteem and I know I'm doing the right thing. Um, but there are other people that they, they lose that, right? They lose that ambition. They lose that ambition to work and they feel like the whole world is a mess and we're doomed. And it's like um, Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. It'll never work. It's not going to work. I think it was like a guy in Gulliver's Travels, right? That was like that. Um, and they have a negative view and, and they lose their ambition. But when, when you lose that, what you're losing is not just your ambition to work. You're losing your ambition to live to, to really seize life and live it to its fullest, you're basically giving up and you're just gliding, you know, you're just going through the motions. That's why so many people have such severe depression in this, in the United States is because people have given up or they don't see opportunity or goodness in the world. Sometimes you got to search hard for it. It's not, sometimes it's not staring you in the face, but it's there. And there are people that have found it and there are people that are still seeking it. There's still people that are, you know, it's called pursuit of happiness because we're always on the hunt and that hunt keeps us going. And sometimes we find it and we find happiness, but then we realize we could even be happier and we go and we continue the pursuit and we get better as a result. So, but your work is valuable. Your work should be your purpose in life. Now, granted, I know family and there's a lot of other purposes in life, but your work should definitely be one of your key purposes in life. I would encourage you to have an answer to that question. So what do you do? You know, it's almost like an elevator speech that business people have to have. So what does your company do? You got to have an answer to that, not just so you can respond to that person, but so you can respond to yourself. And so you can teach yourself and remind yourself why you are doing what you're doing and why you're in the career that you're in. And if you don't have a really good answer to the question, so what do you do when you're at a dinner party and someone asks you, what do you do? If you don't have a good answer to that, that should be an indication that you're doing the wrong thing. You, you need to change. You need to come up with a different way of, you need a different per career, a different pursuit, a different perspective. You need to do something different because we need to have a good answer to that question. Now, Joy Reid, who I kicked off this podcast of, uh, about, she's a, you know, of course, a MSNBC host. And she's aghast that people are going back to work in Texas and in Mississippi. And I think that's we're going to start seeing that in other, in other states. The mask mandates are starting to be relaxed. People are going back to work. And she's not happy about it. Um, she's not happy about it because I think her perspective on this is flawed, in my opinion. She sees it first as a racial issue. Now, granted, I understand there's a racial component to it. Um, you know, our, our school board member in La Mesa Spring Valley had data about the COVID pandemic and how it disproportionately affects Latinos. I get that. I understand that. There is a racial component to it. But in the whole scheme of things, that's a, that's a smaller piece of the overall picture. The, the bigger point of this is, is that work needs to be seen as a necessary good, not a necessary evil. Work is our for many of us, is our purpose in life. It's how we live our values. It's how we pursue our happiness. It's how we go out and be all that we can be. And the rewards we come, get from our work are not just financial. It's not just a paycheck. It's about building self-confidence, self-esteem, pride, 
that, you know, pride is commented as one of the deadly sins, the seven deadly sins. In my opinion, pride, when done right, pride is a virtue. If it leads to self-esteem and self-confidence, not overconfidence, not some, you know, aloof (laughs) know-it-all. I don't mean that. But if you have like legitimate, truthful self-esteem and self-confidence, that kind of pride is good. That kind of pride is what makes life worth living. And that's good. That's goodness. Um, And I think we can, we can, we can go back to work safely. I'm not saying that it's a hundred percent back to normal, but people have already demonstrated. We've had healthcare workers working through this pandemic. We've had people working in so-called essential businesses, working through this pandemic and doing it safely. No reason why we can't have a school teacher or a school custodian or a school administrative aide or a school counselor go back to, to go back to work in the La Mesa Spring Valley School District and do so safely. It's doable, friends. And I think we just need to start breaking it down. But I think a lot of people just don't embrace work. They don't see it for what it is. So, um, wow, I've been... You know, I do these podcasts and I keep telling myself I want to keep them to another an hour and we're at an hour and 36 minutes. So some of you have been with me most of the way, if not all the way. And thank you for that. And, you know, I do this every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at two o'clock and I live stream on Facebook and on YouTube. I invite your questions and comments. Pat Johnson, thank you. You've, you've been chiming in a, a bunch of times. I wish we had more people chiming in, making more of this a dialogue. And I know we've had other, other podcasts. We've had a lot more participation. So always look forward to that. Um, I got a closing quote. I always have a closing quote, or most always, on these solo podcasts. And this kind of goes to the whole notion of why work is important, why work is valuable, why work is a reflection of your own values, why work is how we pursue our happiness. It's how we go out in the world and, and have achievements and success and we get things done and we make a difference in the world around us. And that's how really how humans have progressed, you know, for millennia is because of productive people that have gone out there and freaking had to do lists and we're checking things off. It's uh, like that song, um, short skirt, long jacket. You know, she's uh, touring the facility and picking up slack. You know, it's that whole thing, you know, about getting out there and getting stuff done. And so work is good. So. This is a, a quote, and it's, it's from Ayn Rand. And she said, the question isn't who is going to let me, it's who's going to stop me. And man, what a great perspective that is. It's, you know, you're not out there trying to wonder and get permission and should I go back to work? It's like, damn it, get back to work. And I've got big things I want to accomplish in my life. I have goals. I have aspirations. I don't want my employers holding me back. I don't want my coworkers holding me back. I don't want anyone holding me back to live my dreams and to pursue my happiness. So as she said, the question isn't who's going to let me, it's who's going to stop me. And I would really encourage everyone to have that mindset, not just now as we're coming out of the COVID pandemic, but overall as we move forward. So, um, Wow, this is episode 209 of the John Riley Project and live streaming, podcasting from our studio here in Poway, California, the so-called city in the country. You know, we did our last podcast all about kind of local Poway stuff. I know a lot of my listeners and viewers live here in my hometown, and I like talking about local stuff, like super local, like here in our backyard. 
today, we talked about La Mesa, right, and the La Mesa Spring Valley School District. Um, we talked about national issues like um, Joy Reid on MSNBC and talking about the pandemic and talking about um, talk about racial issues and systemic racism and institutional racism. We've talked about a lot of things in this podcast, but but I hope the takeaway from all of this is is that work is important. Work is valuable. Work is a necessary good, not a necessary evil. And if we can take that and we can not only embrace that in our own lives, but teach it to our children, teach it to the people around us, um, we can make our own difference in the world. So thanks again for listening and watching. Um, this is the John Riley Project. It's episode number 209. Thank you very much for listening and watching. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back at you Monday at 2 o'clock. Bye-bye.